I would ask that you would open God's Word this morning to the book of Titus. We find ourselves in Titus chapter 1 as we continue our series that we have entitled Setting Us Straight. And last week we uh, did an introduction, getting to know Paul the writer, Titus the recipient, and then the message uh, that is contained in this book, looking at some of the key themes that are a part of uh, this incredible book. And we find ourselves today looking at the opening salutation, uh, the opening introduction of uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so I'd ask that you would turn there. And as you're turning there, a couple things that we need to be made aware of before we get into this text is of all of Paul's letters in uh, the, the Bible, in the New Testament, Titus has the second longest salutation, and uh, we'll do a little jeopardy. Does anybody know the longest introduction of all of uh, the books that Paul wrote? Anybody know? The book of... Okay, are we awake out here? Anybody got an idea? Anybody know Paul? Does anybody know any of the books Paul wrote? (laughs) Timothy is not it. Another one. Romans, the book of Romans. Thank you, whoever did that. I was dying up here. The book of Romans. Now, of course, the book of Romans is a much longer book than this short three-chapter letter uh, to Titus. But in this, we have the second longest salutation. And and sometimes we look at opening introductions and we say, okay, Paul, get to the real stuff. Yeah, yeah, we know you love God. Grace and peace be to you. And and we know that you've been called. But we are going to learn today uh, some incredible truths that are found in this opening introduction uh, from uh, the book of Titus. So I'm going to ask just as you've turned there and uh, before you get too comfortable that we would stand for the reading of God's word and uh, let's look at Titus 1 verses 1 through 4 as God's blessing and then get into the text. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for these opening verses of this wonderful book. Lord, we are going to be set straight throughout this series. And Lord, tonight we are going to be set straight on our purpose in life. And Lord, we thank you for the example that Paul gives. The example of of being a slave and being one who is sent. But even beyond that, Father, one who recognizes that his whole existence is for the sake of others. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be a people like that, that we would serve you and out of our service to you, uh, we would be diligent in serving others. Lord, I pray for our church that as we do ministry, we would be a people who can see the impact that we're making on the faith of others. Lord, we also will see and recognize the hope that we have. And Lord, we thank you for the hope of eternal life. We thank you for the hope that uh, the grave is not the end for us. Uh, But it is uh, just a a momentary place, Lord, where we will uh, see our bodies go. But one day you will resurrect us and take us to be with you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, that absent from the body, that we are present with you. 
And Lord, I pray for our diligence in the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, I pray that just as Paul was, that we would be diligent in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That Lord, as we do this, that we would together uh, be brothers and sisters in a common faith. Lord, I pray that you would bind us together through the bond of, through the bond of peace, uh, through the unity of the Spirit, Father. I pray that we would be a united church ready to serve arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with those that are sitting around us. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for what it's going to teach us. Now open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered what your purpose in life is? I mean, really ask that question. What has God created me for? Have you ever, even as as an adult, looked at what you're doing and say, is this what God has for me? Is this how God wants me to use my gifts? Is this where God wants me engaged in the ministry of the gospel? For many of our young people, they will ask this question And they'll ask this question when it comes to who uh, they should involve themselves with in a relationship, what schools they should go to, uh, what they should do after uh, they finish up with uh, school and head off to a career. Uh, What is my goal in life? What is my purpose? But for many of us, we never ask the question of God, God, what do you have of me, not just in the details of my everyday life, but in my spiritual life as well? Am I just finding myself drifting, or do I see myself growing to an ever greater increasing maturity in Christ Jesus? Do you ever take time to take stock at the ministries that you're a part of, the use of the gifts that God has given you, and ask the question, maybe it's time for a change. Maybe it's a time for me to invest and and devote myself to other things because God hasn't just willed that I do this or that, but something greater. In our opening salutation today, Paul addresses the importance of knowing your place in this world. Again, not just knowing your career or where you're going to live, but how you are going to serve Christ and honor him with the gifts that he has given you. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices and to do that day in and day out. In 1992, when I was just a young man, uh, a Christian song uh, was made very famous because it had, it had uh, crossed over to the secular charts. It was written by the famous Michael W. Smith. And it hit number six on the Billboard charts, and it was a song called Place in This World. And it asked a lot of the questions that we find ourselves asking today. And in the second verse, he shares these words. If there are millions down on their knees, among the many, can you still hear me? You hear me asking, where do I belong? Is there a vision that I can call my own? Before he goes to the chorus, he is asking, Lord, where will you have me? Now, I'm amazed that this song broke through to the secular side because there's nothing about love, there's nothing about relationships, there's nothing about the pursuit of riches. It is all about the pursuit of finding the vision that God had for him. And brothers and sisters, this morning, that is what God is calling us to. What vision, what one thing has God given for you to do? In what ways does he want you to serve? 
Oh, you may have ministry. You may be doing things within the church. But let me ask this question. Is it something that God has ordained for you to do based on who he has made you and how he has gifted you? Or is it just something that you do that doesn't really take any uh, great faith or great uh, work? It's just something that you're a part of because you know that at a church you need to be involved. But notice what Michael W. Smith goes on to say. He says, show me. I'm looking for a reason. Roaming through the night to find my place in this world. My place in this world. I don't have a lot to lean on. I need your light to help me find my place in this world. It is my prayer, and I believe it's the elders' prayer, that each and every one of us here in this church would find our place. For many of us, we have found our place in Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't just save us just for the sake of saving us, but he saved us so that we may glorify him by serving him in the ways that he's called us to serve. After a great uh, passage of scripture on us being saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul addresses in verse 10 this understanding of finding our place. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared a long time ago in advance of us to do. And today, Paul addresses his place. And I believe as we see his place, we will be able to recognize our place and our ministry and our calling to serve the one and true God, Jesus Christ. And so let's look at how we can find our place in this world And we see the first thing it involves is is somewhat of a review from last week, but that is knowing your position. I know we talked about this a lot last week, but I think it's important that we go back to it and understand it within the context of these opening verses. And it's imperative that we are reminded of these things because far too often we forget the position that God has for us. I've never been a a slender, uh, fast runner in all of my life, but one thing I always wanted to be uh, when we would play football was I always wanted to be a wide receiver. And the guys around me would say, Tim, you need to be on the line. You're you're a big guy, you know, you're big. You need to be on that line covering and tackling and all of that. And I'd say, no, give me the ball. I want to run like the wind. And I can assure you that any time I ever played wide receiver, we lost. Because I was out of position. The guy that was defending me was always faster. The guy that defended me always was able to be quicker and move uh, in a far more agile way than I would ever be able to. And yet time in and time out, because of the glory that the wide receiving position got, I wanted to do it. Well, far too many of us as Christians are pursuing positions in our lives that don't fit us. And as a result of that, we're out of place, we're out of position. And notice what Paul says. He establishes position right away. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. He says, right away, if I want to know my place in the world that God has for me, then I must understand, first of all, I'm a slave. And I'm not going to readdress all these things. You can listen to last week's sermon if you missed it. But I'm a slave. I take orders from God and God alone. And some of us need to hear that this morning. 
I have a master, and this master is the one who tells me where I go, how I serve, how I use the gifts and the time that God has given me. But he goes on and he says, I'm not only a slave, but I'm a a spokesman. I'm an apostle. I have the role of telling people, of proclaiming to the world the greatness of the gospel that called me out on that road to Damascus. And yet so many of us, unlike Paul, find ourselves out of position. Some of us find ourselves out of position because we think that we have nothing to add to ministry, nothing to add to life. And so we've just found a place that seems comfortable to us, and that's what I'm going to do, and and I shouldn't have to do anything more because that's all I'm really good at. And yet what, what God's Word says time and time again is God never creates something that He can't use. And so God has created you, and He created you for a purpose And your job may not be to preach on Sunday mornings, or your job may not be to go to foreign fields and do missions work, but God has called you to an equally important task. And the focus and the goal that you have, just as Paul did, was what is my position? Where am I called to serve? Some of you don't feel qualified. But I will remind you that every one of the biblical characters in the Bible, very few of them, if any, were ever qualified for the task that God had for them. They were wonderful people, they were good people, but seemingly they weren't ready or qualified. And I love this phrase, that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And so God is calling you to something. You say, well, I'm not any good at it. I I can't accomplish that. Years ago, before I took on this role, I, I had a lot of disclaimers I don't have much of an education. I don't have any experience. I don't don't know what it means to to preach week in and week out. And God says, that's not your job to worry about that. Your job is to say yes. And likewise for you as well. And so our response, because we're slaves, because God has given us our marching orders, is to respond humbly and say, here I am, Lord, send me. When was the last time you uttered those words that Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6? That you would say, Lord, I'm willing. I don't think I have much to really give to you, much to offer you. But Lord, I give you all that I am. Use me in the ways that you see fit. And I will tell you, you start praying those dangerous prayers, God will use you in ways that you never thought possible. We just have to humble ourselves and say, you're the master I'm your servant, and I'm willing to go in the direction you'll have of me. Now notice the next thing that Paul goes on to say. The reason why he's a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is the second reason we find in how we find our place in this world. Once we find our position, then we must then look to the second thing, and that is following Christ's pattern for ministry. And Paul says, the reason why I do these things, he gives two reasons. The first one is for the faith of God's elect. Why am I a slave? Titus, why am I an apostle? What is my motivation? Tell the people in Crete, my motivation for serving God is for the faith of God's elect. The reason that Paul did all that he did, the reason why Paul found himself in the places that he did was for the simple fact that he wanted to grow the faith of the church in Crete and Christians all over the world. 
Oh, if we would pursue this type of ministry. If we would begin to say that, that our ministry and our work isn't about us, but it's about others, we would find ourselves ahead most days. Because Paul says, the whole reason for my service is to serve the family of God. When was the last time you asked that question? Is the service that I'm a part of, is the ministry I'm a part of, again, just a task? Or is it to serve those around me? I can assure you that if it is just to serve and just to be a good uh, member of Village Bible Church, you will grow tired and weary of the ministry. But if you serve with a heart that says it's not about me, but it's those around me and serving those, it will take your ministry to a whole different place. Let me explain. Some of you hand out bulletins on Sunday and praise God for it. We have to have people to hand out bulletins. We have to have people that shake hands. And you would say, well, that's not that important of a thing. I can assure you that's of great importance. Studies tell us that in the first seven minutes, people determine whether or not they'll return to a church. And some people have, don't even know uh, about Jesus Christ when they're walking, and they just know that they've got to come to a place uh, where there could be some hope and some answers for the problems that they face. And the person that hands out the bulletin, the person that shakes hands, isn't just doing a task. And if you're just doing a task, then you're missing out on the opportunity that God has to grow the faith of others. So when you start looking at ministry in that lens and serving those around you, you're going to come even at the 8 o'clock service with a smile on your face, with encouragement in your heart to show hospitality to those that enter into this place. For those that work in the nursery, that are working right now, you say, what good is it to hold babies? I mean, come on. I'd rather be in with all the adults and serving uh, and worshiping and singing than to be here serving uh, these babies. But let me tell you something. When you begin to recognize that your holding of those babies and your loving on those little children, whether it's in the nursery or in children's worship, that what you are showing them is the love of our God in heaven. And you're showing them that even though we are failing, that God is ever faithful at his love towards us. And so your faithfulness and your willingness to come in week in and week out, to sacrifice and be willing to serve in that way, says to the world around you, whether it's the parents that drop off those kids or those kids in general, that they're loved and that their needs are important to others. As a father with three children that are in those ages, my children have learned from your example Christ-like love. They've learned from your example, Christ-like diligence. That the reason why they like to come on Sunday morning is because you have prepared yourself to minister to them and they're excited to be a part of it. And so if you're just serving our children because of a job that you've been given, then ask the Lord, how can I begin to grow the lives of those around me? How can I help the faith of God's elect? We could go on, but, but I want you to know this could take on a whole new level of ministry. If we would just begin to look at how we can impact the lives of others. I was yesterday at a funeral at my old church in Plano. And I ran into, and I knew I would run into a lot of uh, old friends. I ran into one of my, uh, I, I say this and I get in trouble, one of my young Sunday school teachers. 
And she was there, and just a wonderful woman, a mature woman, a woman that uh, used to be able to tell, I don't care what the kids have these days with technology, what she did on a flannel board was awe-inspiring. And she came up, and, and she put her hands in, into mine, and, and I says, good to see you, and uh, I've been praying for you. I know your health isn't the greatest. And she says, oh, who cares about my health? I hear you're a preacher. And I said, I am. She says, all of that work, all of that toiling, I'm like, oh boy, this is going to go bad. She said, was worth it. She says, to see you young kids growing up, and serving the Lord. She says, I've got a couple refrigerator magnets of, of some of my students on the mission field. And she said, it was all worth it. And she said, early on, I would wonder, am I making an impact? Am I doing anything? And she says, now looking back, I am so thankful that I said yes to serving so many years ago. And I looked at her and I said, thank you. God bless you. You poured into me and you didn't have to. You poured into me knowing that, that I may walk out and not remember the story that you told me. I may not have even been listening. But little did I know that what was going on there, the seeds that were being planted, would change my life forever. Oh, if we at Village Bible Church would start to look at ministry not as a job, but as an opportunity to pour, as Paul did, I do all things for the sake of God's elect. Paul would say in another passage of scripture, that is why I am suffering. Some of you say, but you don't understand. Ministry is so difficult. It's so hard. And I've been there. I've been there when everybody seems to just have problems and there's no fun in ministry. And I have to go and say, you know what? Paul suffered far greater than I did. And he did so not for his own good, but for the good of those around us. We as a church must be persevering through the difficult times, knowing that through the difficult times of our ministry, that God is growing a people to be like his son Jesus. And he's using your humble approach. He's using the best uh, toiling that you can do. And he's making it by the power of the Holy Spirit something beautiful. And so the next time you're involved in ministry, or the next time you find yourself at the job of ministry within the church, ask yourself this question. How is what I'm doing affecting those around me? I'll tell you, it'll take you to a new level. Paul says the whole reason for what he does is to serve others. But notice there's a couple things that he says in regards to the service of others. He brings up a second point, and that is that he does so for the faith of God's elect. But, But what is it for? He goes on and he says, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness This is important because he's going to give a pattern. And Paul's taking the pattern by which Christ had established in Matthew 28. When Jesus is leaving the earth, he tells his disciples, I want you to go in all the world and I want you to make disciples. I don't want to just make converts, but I want to make disciples. Disciple is a learner. And so you need to teach them the right things. And what Paul is saying is that we need to teach Uh, The knowledge of the truth. This word knowledge is the word epinosis in the Greek. And what it literally means is that we teach the right content, the right doctrine. It is here that Paul speaks about our importance as we minister, as we serve, that we speak of the proper beliefs, that we speak of the proper truth. Because here's the question, how can we expect 
whether it's our children at home or the people that are in our small groups or in our um, children's Sunday school classes or Awana, how can they know Christ and him crucified? How can they know of the risen Lord and Savior? How can they know the word of God unless we teach them that word of God? So it can't just be stories. It can't just be uh, fables of, of doing good and trying harder, but we must teach the content of right teaching. This is why in verse 9, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Why of an elder, which we'll learn about next week, that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. We have a job to do as teachers within uh, the church. As leaders within the church, we are called to teach that which is sound. That which is plumb line good and right. That doesn't uh, divert to the left or, or to the right, but stays centered on the truth of God's word. This knowledge is of great importance. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with what? Sound doctrine. And this teaching of the right conduct goes to everyone within the church. It says, teach the older men. Likewise, teach the older women. Then train the younger women. Similarly, encourage the young men. In everything, it says, set them, as, set them an example by doing what is good. How do we do that, Titus says? In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. So that, that, so that it cannot be condemned. Oh, how important it is for us to teach the truth of Scripture. And this is what the Great Commission tells us. But notice, it isn't just the right content, it's the right conduct. Notice that our job isn't just to teach people the right content. Knowledge, 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 truth, truth, truth. That's all it is. A bunch of facts. So that you can come out with your highlighters and and underline all the important things. And so your study Bible is chock full with all kinds of writings. and, And you can go around and tell everybody, look at how spiritual I am. If there's ever a biblical jeopardy, I would win hands down. Our job as teachers isn't to make you tadpoles with these huge heads. Filled with all this information, this knowledge. But Paul says it's a knowledge that leads to godliness. This idea of godliness is the Greek word that speaks of reverence that is well directed. And what that means is that you have, first of all, a right truth. I know who God is. That's important. Truth is of great importance. But if truth is not directed... If I know who God is, but then I don't do that which God has called me to, my reverence is not well directed. But what Paul is saying is is that the knowledge that I have now transforms me to be different. And so some of us have a lot of truth. We have sat and listened to hundreds of sermons, been involved in hundreds of Sunday school classes, hundreds of different small group meetings and opportunities, and yet the truth that we have, the book of James says, we simply listen to the word, but we do not do it. What is in our head never sees itself getting into our lives, and so we just continue to know all that we need to know about the Bible, but it never changes who we are. And I will tell you something. 
If you're sitting over here and the Bible's a bunch of great facts for you and it's good to go and hear good, solid preaching and all of that, but it doesn't change who you are, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because it's going to be hard for me or anyone else to convince you of how you ought to change your life. Paul says this truth, this knowledge will lead to obedience and godliness. And so what happens? All throughout Paul's writings, it is so, so clear that this is what Paul understands. Have you ever noticed in any of Paul's writings that he starts out and it's doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then about midway through, you start seeing this shift. You see it, of course, in the book of uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. You see it in the book of Romans on a far greater scale. Doctrine at the beginning. Establish the right foundation. For 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul just sits there and says, this is what you need to know about who you are as a sinner and how great and holy God is. But at chapter 12, he says, therefore... In view of God's mercy that you were a sinner and God saved you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And for the rest of the book, he invests in how we ought to live godly lives. Doctrine that leads to the right deeds. The right creed that leads to the right conduct. The right beliefs that lead to the right behavior. And Paul says here that the knowledge that we have can't just be book smart knowledge but wisdom that lives itself out in godliness. Let me illustrate this in the best way that I know how. There are two types of people that go and work out. I know this because I did it once, just once. If you ever go to a workout facility, there are two kinds of people. The one that works out to look good. You'll find them over at the mirrors. They're sitting there and they're standing like this and they're squeezing real hard and doing all this and they're, they're rubbing down their arms and look at that, I got this new muscle here. And all they're doing is, is just showing themselves, look at me, look how, look how strong I am. And they've not proven anything. Yeah, they have muscle, but they've not proven any strength. There's that type of individual in the workout facility and then there's the other who works out because he's going off to war. He's working out because he knows in the day's activities he needs to strengthen his back so he can lift and, and do the things that he needs to. That he knows or she knows that, that they work out because they know that they're out of breath at the end of the day. And they know that for the job that is at hand, they need to ready themselves, prepare themselves to be strengthened. Let me tell you something. A lot of us as Christians are coming to church and are part of ministry so we can show everybody as we look in our mirrors and say, look at this and, and look at that. I know I'm doing a pathetic job, but live with it. Look how smart, look how Christian I am. Look how great I am, how strong and mature I am. But you have not proven anything, but your ability to pose in a mirror. But what God wants is someone who goes to the word and says, I may not look like them, but oh, how I need to strengthen myself in godliness so that I can say no to sin, so I can say no to the worldly passions, so that I can be mature in speech and in godliness, so that I can be a pattern for my children, so I can be a pattern in my church, 
So that as I serve and as I go out and do the work, as I find myself in the battle, I will be equal to the task. Paul wants those types of Christians. A knowledge that leads to godliness. I'll tell you what. You start pursuing that type of Christianity, and you'll be amazed. Sermons and small groups and ABF meetings and Bible studies will take on a whole new understanding. Because it isn't just, oh, you know, who cares about what so-and-so did so many years ago? But what of the truth can I take? Not so I can sound smart at the next party, but that will get me through tomorrow. That I will know how to be aware of the devil's attacks and find godliness instead of sin. Notice he goes on, and and this is a difficult passage to to, um, deal with because I I never did tell you this. I I shared this in my small group. Have you noticed? uh, This this makes it very difficult to outline. This is all big, one big sentence. Did you look at that? Four verses, one big sentence, all kinds of punctuation. You know, I used to write sentences like this, not the content of it, but furthermore and keep going and just throw commas in every once in a while just to look good. And the teacher would just pull out the red mark. But Paul does this, and he does it well. And in the Greek, it, it comes out beautifully. In our English, it just seems kind of like he's rambling on and, and, and going down bunny trails, but, but he's not. He's, he's building a foundation. And so we have an understanding of who we are. We have an understanding of the knowledge that leads to truth. Now why do we serve and why do we pursue this godliness? It is because of the promises of God. Number three, the promises of God. The NIV says we are to rest on these promises. Notice what the text says. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. A faith and knowledge that rests on the hope of eternal life. Paul says the reason why I can accomplish all that I do, the reason why I'm able to focus in on the ministry that he has for me is because I know God has got his job and he's seeing to it that it gets accomplished. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is Paul says, okay, I can't worry about my eternal destination. And God's job is that. And so I'm going to let God, he's promised it, and so I'm going to rely on God and let God do it so that I can be his slave, so I can be his spokesman. I'm going to worry about that which I can worry about, but the thing that God has promised me, I'll rely on his promise. And what God is saying is, you worry about your work, I'll worry about mine. I've promised some things. Now, notice he speaks of this as a hope. Now, in, especially in Bible churches and, and evangelical churches, when we hear the word hope, we, we say, wait a minute, the hope of eternal life, isn't it a certainty? Isn't it something that we can be sure of? And, and hope, boy, that sounds like wishful thinking. Is Paul sitting there saying, I hope, I hope, I hope that at the end of my days I'll be in heaven. No, we know that that's not the case, but in the the Greek, the, the word hope literally means an earnest yearning. He speaks about this in, in Romans chapter 8 when he says that our bodies are groaning for the transformation that will take place when we see Jesus Christ face to face. And this groaning and this hoping, this eager yearning says no matter how life goes, whether it's good or whether it's bad, no matter how much fun we're having here on earth, no matter the blessings that we see, that every one of us as believers at the end of the day say, this is great, but boy, it'll be good to go home. 
Tomorrow, my family's uh, leaving for uh, a vacation uh, to uh, Myrtle Beach. My wife found great uh, airfare tickets and, and all of that, and we're going, we may not make it with the kind of airfare we paid, but uh, we may be out there waving our arms. But uh, we're going to go, and I can assure you, we'll be gone for the good portion of the week. And as great as it will be, there's nothing more wonderful than, than when you come home after a day of activities and your bed has been made, and the towels are all on the towel bar where they should be. That's why they create those towel bars, is to hang your towels. And all of that is wonderful, and it's great, and, and it's just all of the things that, that vacations teach us. I don't know about you, but at the end of that week, usually you know what I'm saying? This was wonderful, this was great, but it's, it's going to be good to go back home. It's going to be good to be back home. The hope of eternal life that we have, this certainty, this earnest yearning, is that which drives us no matter how great this life on earth is, we're always saying, but it'll be good to go home. But it's not wishful thinking. It isn't, boy, I hope and I wish. The best way to illustrate it is is through that of, of my dog, our dog, Boomer, a cocker spaniel. He's been around for about 10 or 11 years. Great little dog. Every once in a while he makes us mad, but he's a good dog most parts. And one thing I love to watch Boomer do is to go to his spot where he knows the food is going to be. And he'll look at that dish, and he'll tap on that dish, and we'll hear the dish going back and forth. Now, he isn't wishing, I wish my master would bring food. I wish, I I don't know if he's going to do it, but I wish that it happens. I, I hope it happens. But the reason why he's there doing that is in an expectant yearning for that which he knows what his master has done in the past. And so he knows it's only a matter of time at his master's choosing, and that's important, I've taught that dog that. At my choosing, I will come, or one of the kids will come, or, or Amanda will come, and we will feed you. But he's hoping. He's yearning. And the reason why he finds himself there is what he is saying is every day that I sit here, my master has been faithful. I've not missed a meal. I'm not going hungry. If you've seen him, he's just like his, his master. He doesn't go hungry. He doesn't push away from the buffet line. And yet... He recognizes, based on our past performance, of the certainty that is to come. Now please excuse the transference of animal to human and to God. But the reason why we have the hope of eternal life, the reason why we can stand established in our place in this world, is because we know a God who is faithful who has promised before all ages that he would love us, he would set his affection on us, and that he would save us on the day of our need. And because of that, we can stand secure. Now notice a couple things about this. I need to move on here. And that is that this promise involves God's character. Notice what he says right away. He says that this hope of eternal life It rests on that, this faith and and, and knowledge rests on this hope of eternal life. He's building a superstructure, and he's saying the foundation is God himself. And notice what he says, a God who does not lie, and then goes on to say, who promised before the beginning of time. There's a couple of things we need to know about God's um, character. 
When God establishes this in the book of Titus, and Paul declares it, we need to know, first of all, that God is an eternal God. Write that somewhere in your outlines. God is an eternal God. When did he make that promise to us? Notice what the text says. Before the beginning of time. God was thinking about you. God was planning for you. Before the beginning of time. Not when your parents were alive, not when your parents were dating, but before their parents were alive, before anybody was alive, before there was an earth, before the beginning of time and space, God was there and he was planning and he was putting into place this hope of eternal life. But notice he goes on and it says that not only does it speak about the eternality of God, the total honesty of God. He says, a God who does not lie. Why would he say that? Was there a question in Crete? Hey, God, you know, sometimes he doesn't tell the truth. Sometimes he exaggerates. There are three reasons why this may have been the case. Number one, Crete was in uh, what is now modern-day Greece. And Greek mythology in those days, in the first century, was filled with stories of gods that tricked or lied to humans to accomplish their will and their desire. They would manipulate. And if you read any Greek mythology, you will see that in story after story. And so maybe Paul is combating that. Next it could have been, he may have said this because of verse 12 of chapter 1, where it says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars. And maybe... What Paul is saying is, is, hey, even though your world is inundated with liars and there's liars all around you, God is faithful and God does not lie. But I'm going to add a third one that I think is probably the reason for this. And that is this. Paul is sharing this to encourage the people of Crete and us today to endure and remain steadfast amidst the promises of God even when it seems like it's taking forever. I've got boys that I will promise something to. And I will say, hey, before you go to bed, we'll wrestle. Last night, it was a wrestling night. And I said, but i got to finish my message. And I can't tell you how many times they came up, Dad, is it time to wrestle? Dad, is it time to wrestle? I said, did I not say we would wrestle before you go to bed? Yeah. Then live in light of that promise. I'm not lying to you. We'll do it. I know, but it's taking too long. You know, we do that as Christians. God promises things to us, and we, like little toddlers, look to God and say, but it's taking too long. I love what Peter says about this. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Chapter three, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And this is what he says. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
God has got a promise. And God has, has promised that since the beginning of time. And he is going to see it through. And we start wondering and saying, but is it going to happen? Don't you see, Lord, the world's going to hell in the handbasket? And, and it seems like you're asleep at the wheel. And God says, I've promised. And you need to trust me in my promises. And we say time and time, but it's taking too long, God. And Paul says, this God is faithful. He does not lie. Notice what happens next. The text tells us in Titus chapter 1 that at his appointed season, he brought his word to light. This speaks of, I believe, not just that the Cretans heard the story of Christ, but even before we can proclaim a story, it involves the incarnation of Christ. It involves the incarnation of Christ. This is seen over and over again that at the appointed time, at just the right time, at just the right season, Galatians 4.4, Romans 5.6, Ephesians 1.10 are all passages that say Jesus showed up at just the right time. He appeared. He made himself manifest at just the right time. Why did he do this? Because God had promised it. And since the beginning of time, God, in what theologians call the covenant of redemption, was that the God had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before you and I were ever brought into this world, before this world was brought into existence, God said, this is how we will do it. We will establish human, humanity. They're going to fall and then, and then what we are going to do is as a result of their sin and us bringing ourselves glory, we're going to send the second person, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Jesus didn't, or Jesus didn't get called to the cross somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, but before eternity began, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, knew his mission and his plan to redeem you and I because it's a promise from long ago. Notice who it involves, the salvation of his children. Where does all this come from? This promise, this promise that is the hope of eternal life, that this promise and hope of eternal life that then is established in the idea of the faith of God's elect, that the truth of that hope of eternal life is established in the idea of us coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me explain this to you. Before the foundations of the world, the Trinity gathered themselves together in a way that is mysterious to us and made a promise, a promise about you and a promise about you and a promise about you and you that at just the right time you would be born and at just the right time, like every other sinner in the world, you would fall to sin and you would find yourself helpless because of your sin but because of God's promise that he made eons ago. He said, I will save you, and I will love you. Have you ever gotten a card from someone that you know is far more important than you, or far more busier than you, and they hear through the grapevine that you've been sick, and a card comes in the mail, and it says, hey, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, and you say, wow, that's great. Mr. So-and-so, so so busy, and he's got important things to deal with, but he remembered me. Take that to the exponential level. God, who has eternity in this world to deal with, remembers you. If that doesn't ignite your heart, I don't know what will on an October 31st morning. God loves you, and God has a plan for you, and it's a promise you can hold to because God does not lie. Number four. 
Finding our place in this world involves doing our part. Once we know, once we know that we have the, the hope of eternal life that rests on God, then we're able to do our part. Paul says that as a result, at the appointed season, he brought his world to, the word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul says, now it's my job. Now that the word has been made manifest to us, now that I know the way of the gospel, now that I'm a part of all these things, now it's my job to go and tell others. And he speaks of two words. First of all, of an obligation. He says the word commanded. I like what William Barclay says, by royal order or decree of Jesus Christ. I've been given this charge. Paul realized this, and that's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as a result of what God has done for us, because of his faithfulness and the promise of giving us the hope of eternal life, he's now called us, in fact, he's commanded us to preach that gospel to all those that we'll come in contact with. And he's done so to the point that we would say, woe to us if we don't do it. We're compelled to this. We're called to this. If we don't do it, we'll shrivel up and die. This is what Paul is saying. And yet so many of us are content with being spectators to being watchers. And Paul says, not me. I have been commanded to do this work. And so, so have we. Next, we see an opportunity. The word entrusted there right before commanded. Through the preaching entrusted to me, what an opportunity we have been given. Do we recognize, as Paul did, the privilege of proclaiming the gospel? Do we understand the privilege of every day that we are given to reach out to our community, to reach out to the world around us and say, I was a sinner, but God saved me and loves me and will on the day of my departure be with me. Because I know he is faithful. And as a result of that, I have no greater privilege in all of this world than to say I'm a child of God. And I'm going to do all that I can because I've been entrusted with this great gift to see to it that you, my neighbors, you, my friends, you, my family, will hear it. Paul understood what God had done for him. And as a result of that, he now does his part. Finally, I'll close with this, and we talked about it last week, but we'll address it one more time. And that is finding our place in this world. Finding our place in this world involves partnering with other believers. Paul says in verse 4, To Titus, my true son, in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We cannot find our place In this world, we cannot find our place in ministry until we understand the partnership that we have with one another. Notice for a moment the common or the close bond that uh, Titus and Paul has. He calls him his true son. He speaks of a common faith. Understand this: these two guys weren't close because they came from the same hometown. These guys weren't close because they went to the same college. These guys weren't close because they shared the same nationality. They weren't close for any other reason than they believed in the same God. 
The reason why you're here today isn't because we all make the same amount of money or come from the same places or have the same testimony story. Brothers and sisters, the reason why we have the close bond that we do is because of one reason, Jesus Christ. That's it. And so we're able to say to one another, you're my brother, you're my sister. We can hug one another, we can love on one another, and we don't have to have all these commonalities to who we are, but the only thing we have to have to show the love that we do is Jesus Christ. Some of us don't know our place in this world because we have never established our place with one another. And understood that God has called us to this incredible bond of brotherhood in the cause of Christ Jesus. Finally, this partnership involves common blessing. Let me just close with some simple words. Grace, God's unmerited favor, and peace. A time that takes away, any, a time that, that doesn't have any hostility. These two things, God's unmerited favor and God's ceasing of hostility is that which you and I enjoy. And it is because of that that we now can go back to verse 1 and say, because of what you've done for me, God, I can serve you and I can speak for you. And I don't have to worry about anything else because I've been forgiven. I don't have to worry about anything because you, God, and I aren't at war anymore. But there's peace between you and I. And so I am free. I am able with my brothers and sisters in Christ based on what you have taught me of the truth that leads to godliness, I am able to serve you, I am able to love you, I am able to minister for you, because all that you've done for me, what a privilege it is for me to serve you in all that I say and do to the glory of our God and Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray today that we would re- look, take a new look at our lives, that we would refocus and see all that you've done, all that you have done for us, and that we would, as a result of what you have done, your faithfulness, pursue a faithful life of our own. Father, I pray that, that we would relook our, at our ministries, that we would take a new look at our, at our purposes and priorities, and ask the question, Lord, is all that I'm doing, does it stand in line with what you've done for me? Lord, I know as I look at my own life, there are things that I pursue, there are things that I do because I don't want to be your slave. I want to be my own master. I want to speak for myself, not someone else. And Lord, I pray that we would be a different people as a result of what we've heard today. Lord, there are some that are hurting and some that are wondering, will your promises become a reality? And Lord, we only have to look at your past performance to know that you are faithful to accomplish all that concerns us today. That we can be resting and, and reliant on what you have promised. So that Lord, because you've promised and we know you're faithful, that we can spend the rest of our lives not worrying about tomorrow, not worrying about the day of our departure, but to allow our days and nights to be filled with the proclamation of you who was made manifest to all the world. Lord, I pray that that would be who we are and who we will be. Empower us by the gift of your Holy Spirit to accomplish these things so that as we leave this place, 
that we would begin to see the common bond and the blessings flow from our life because again you are faithful lead us from this place into our ABFs and into ongoing ministry and fellowship and bring us back again next week in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said Amen God bless you you are dismissed